In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Sometimes it's annoying when you can't remember a dream, isn't it? You're sleeping, you have a very vivid dream, and then you wake up, and, or you start to wake up, and in that state where you're still sort of half asleep, but half awake, your brain tells you that whatever it was you were just dreaming about is like the most important thing in the world. And then you wake up all the way, and it's gone. Completely gone. Isn't that annoying? The only thing that's left is that urgent feeling that whatever it was you were dreaming about was so incredibly important. And it's, it's unsettling. But you brush it off because, I mean, it was only a dream. You probably just had too much pizza before you went to bed or something like that. Dreams seem important when you're in the middle of one, but we all know, or at least we think, they, they, they aren't really. Maybe it's just our subconscious trying to work something out while we sleep, and so we move on. But not everybody thinks, not everybody has thought about dreams that way. The Babylonians, for example, conveniently, the Babylonians, they thought of dreams as communications from the gods. And they made a whole science out of their interpretation. Kind of like New Agers do today. Although I think the Babylonians put a lot more effort into it. They had voluminous texts that explained what the symbolism of the dreams meant and how they would be put together and, and what you did with that and what it all meant. And this was the sort of thing that Daniel and his friends were taught in their three years of training in Babylonian wisdom. That and you know how to read. Um, you know They would cut open the entrails of an animal and they would be trained to read and interpret what they saw there or what the various flights and patterns of birds meant. Or you'd pour oil into wine or wine into oil and kind of like people today try to read tea leaves looking at the blobs. They had volumes of books and this was the wisdom of the Babylonians because these were the ways that the gods spoke. So you can imagine that if Nebuchadnezzar had... A dream, he'd be more than annoyed, more than annoyed when he couldn't remember it when he woke up. The gods spoke, and I've forgotten what they said. So that's how the second chapter of Daniel begins. And it's it's a long chapter, so I'll get straight into it. Uh, the sermon today is probably more text than it is actual sermon, but that's how it is sometimes. So here's what we read: Daniel 2. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in, and they stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. And then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, and, and at this point, the, the book transitions. They don't just, it's not just a quote from them, but the, the whole book transitions into the Aramaic language from Hebrew until the second half of the book. They said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show you the interpretation. And the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word for me is firm. 
If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. They probably weren't expecting that. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. And they answered a second time and said, um, let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. And the king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time, because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, the dream itself, not just the interpretation, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times changed. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. (laughs) For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult. No one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. Nebuchadnezzar was, at the time, up to that time, the greatest emperor the world had ever known. So you can only imagine how many wise men he had at his court, but the text makes a point of sort of piling them up. It's not really the point to get into, like, what's the difference between a magician and an enchanter and a Chaldean. The point is just, he's got tons of these guys. He's got the greatest wise men in the world to tell him what his dreams mean. And so he summons them. And you can imagine them all in their fancy robes streaming through the palace to the king's throne room. All ready to tell the king what he wants to know. Carrying their big tomes of dream interpretation with them. But they get there. They say, king, tell us your dream. But then Nebuchadnezzar drops a bomb. He says, uh 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 You tell me what I dreamed. And you can imagine them looking at him nervously, and they say, you know, we're not the ones who had the dream. You had the dream. Your majesty, this is not how it works. You tell us the dream. We tell you what it means. And so the king rages against them. Tell me, or I'll have you all ripped limb from limb. And again, they plead with him. That is not how it works. That's not how it ever worked. No king has ever asked his wise men to reveal a dream. You know that. What you ask is impossible. And again, they they reiterate, we can tell you what your dream means, but only the gods can reveal the dream itself. And then they say, the gods do not dwell with flesh. The gods... Do not dwell with flesh. And there it is. The gods do not live with men. That's the setup for this whole story. I mean, everybody in the world, or at least everybody in the pagan world, everybody knew that the gods were distant, far away. There were ways to get access to them, 
through temples and idols and offerings and all that kind of thing. But everybody also knew that the gods were notoriously capricious when it came to answering. They might. They might not. Usually not. There's a wonderful text. I mean, it's a really sad text, but it's a wonderful text illustrating this that we have from ancient Babylon. With a man writing about his experience, going to the temple and praying to the gods because his life was falling apart. And he assumed that he had done something to anger the gods. But no matter what he did, nothing went right. He didn't know what he did wrong. He was guessing. He was offering formulaic sacrifices and things like that, and nothing got better. And he just goes to the gods and he prays, I don't know what I've done. Please tell me. I don't even know which god I've offended. He's desperate. That's what religion was like in the ancient pagan world. That's why the king had these magicians. Magic, that's the science of figuring out the right formulas. What offerings, what incantations, what prayers, what actions had worked for people in the past. And writing them down. And tying them to certain things so that we can try them again in the future. Sometimes it worked. Most of the time it didn't. Because the gods, as they admit here, the gods are far off. The gods were fickle. So if and when the gods spoke, the wise men were ready to apply all their learning to tell you what it meant. But first the gods had to speak. If the king couldn't or wouldn't tell them what the gods had said, well, there really wasn't anything they could do. And maybe Nebuchadnezzar was feeling violent and capricious. The historical record doesn't seem to indicate he was that kind of a guy. But maybe I wonder if he knew sort of deep down that all of the things these wise men did Divining the will of gods by looking up at the flight of birds or looking at the entrails of animals or looking at the blobs when you mixed oil and wine. Maybe Nebuchadnezzar suspected it was all nonsense. That this whole enterprise of magic and dream interpretation and mantic wisdom, that it was all really useless. He knew, just like everybody else did, the gods are distant. They're silent. And, and I've got this, this whole army of guys who will come and give me the illusion that the gods are near. But I wonder if Nebuchadnezzar knew that it was really all lies and all a sham. I mean, maybe that's why he lashes out at these men. I can't say for certain. But whatever the case, the wise men, they can't tell the king his dream. So he sentences them to death. It seems like he's saying, if this system doesn't work, what's the point? I'm just going to burn it all down. Maybe when you're God, the gods will send me someone wiser. Enter Daniel. Enter the God of Israel. Daniel and his God stand in contrast to all the wise men and the gods of Babylon. And we get a sense of the frustration of the Babylonians. Notice they don't even try. I mean, they know it's hopeless. They cannot do what the king asked. Their gods are not going to help them. They consign themselves to pleading, please don't kill us. You're being unreasonable. But Daniel, notice how he's different. 
So picking up at verse 13, it says, So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the king of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Daniel's different. Notice how confident he is in the Lord. Before he's even prayed, before he's spoken with his friends, Daniel tells the executioner to hold up. Don't kill anybody. Make a time for me to meet with the king. Daniel is absolutely certain that when that appointment comes, when he stands before the emperor, he will have the answer. Remember, in the last chapter, the Lord gave wisdom to Daniel. And now, in light of that wisdom, Daniel discerns that this is what he has to do. It's not mechanical or formulaic like it was for the Babylonian wise men. I mean, Daniel still goes back to his friends, and he tells them to pray for God to have mercy on them. But in his God-given wisdom, Daniel knows what needs to happen. Now, to be clear here, this does not mean that God will always intervene in this way for his people. This this is an issue that, that crops up all through the first half of the book of Daniel. I mean, when it's needed, when Daniel's life is on the line, the Lord will speak here to Daniel and he'll be saved. The Lord will rescue Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah from the fiery furnace a few chapters later. That does not mean that the Lord will always speak or that he will always rescue his people from martyrdom. That's not the message of Daniel. Sometimes godly wisdom is to recognize when not to make this sort of commitment before God has spoken. Sometimes godly wisdom is to prepare for martyrdom. The point is that in contrast to the gods of the pagans, the Lord, the God of Israel, is present with his people, and he equips for each and every situation as is necessary and appropriate. And it's not always the same. But in contrast to the gods of the Babylonians, this is the God who dwells with men. So I wonder, Daniel made this commitment before he even prayed about it, before he went and asked God. I wonder if Arioch rolled his eyes. I wonder if he went back and told Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they're like (laughs) rolling their eyes. What did you get us into, Daniel? Maybe even the Lord rolled his eyes when Daniel came and said, I've committed you to this. And yet I think the Lord is happy with that because he knows his child is acting in the wisdom he has given. And Daniel's confident. Everything about this indicates that in the wisdom the Lord has given him, Daniel is confident. He has faith. So going on. Verse 17, Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. I bet they prayed really hard. (laughs) So that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. 
And then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Notice how all of that stands in utter contrast to the Babylonian wise men whose gods are distant and silent. Israel's God, who to all appearances has been defeated by the gods of Babylon, his temple vessels have been taken and stored away in their treasury, Israel's God nevertheless has wisdom and might. He directs the seasons and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the understanding. Remember last week in chapter 1, Nebuchadnezzar came and he took the people away and he took the temple vessels away and he conquered, conquered Jerusalem. But there's that note. The Lord gave it to him. And in this case, he's given wisdom and might to Daniel that he might set, save the lives of these pagan wise men. I mean, how merciful is God that through Daniel, he's going to spare the lives of these pagan frauds who worship false gods. I mean, what a potential witness to the pagans this is. The Lord acts through Daniel on behalf of these men who think themselves wise, but who are really fools committed to false gods. And I'll add, this points to the reason for Judah's exile. They were supposed to be a light in the darkness and a witness to the pagans who lived around them, that God lived in their midst. And they failed. And so God takes them into exile, and what happens? This happens. Through Daniel and his friends in exile, God will bring the pagans to his feet to give him glory. But before, continuing with the story in verse 24, Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. Goes to the execution. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. So Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. So there's already a setup. This guy's different. He's one of those conquered people, the nobodies, but he's got it. And the king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Oh boy, Daniel answers the king. He said, No! No wise men, enchanters, magician, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But, see, Daniel doesn't take the credit. He is a witness to the God of Israel. He says, There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and who has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. 
And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. So Daniel, he's saying that hymn of praise to God, and now all those things he... He, he gave God praise for in his song. Now they all come out in his explanation to the king. Again, this is Daniel's moment to be light in the darkness. This is, in part, what the exile was all about. Finally, Israel making God known to the pagans. This is why the Lord gives wisdom. So that the wise will put his glory on full display. Brothers and sisters, consider that. Wisdom is not ultimately for us. The Lord gives wisdom so that we can glorify Him, so that we can lead others to glorify Him. Now, on to the dream itself, picking up at verse 31. Daniel says, You saw, O king, and behold a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. And then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floor. And the wind carried them away, so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was a dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given whatever, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, making you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you. And yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. 
A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation, sure. You can imagine Nebuchadnezzar listening intently to Daniel and saying, Yes, yes, that was the dream. A great statue with a head of gold, a chest of silver, a middle of bronze, legs of iron, and these, these weird feet with iron and clay mixed. Like, who would make a statue like that? And Daniel explains that these are successive kingdoms. At least that's how the English Standard Version that I'm reading from translates it. The Aramaic word isn't that specific. It could refer to kingdoms or empires, or it could refer to the reigns of individual kings. And the great Nebuchadnezzar, of course, he's the head of gold. But those who come after will gradually diminish in their glory and their strength. Not that they won't be strong in their own rights, but nothing will be the same after Nebuchadnezzar. And that final reign or that final kingdom represented by steel and clay mixed and brittle, it will be ripe for a fall. And that's exactly what will happen. A fifth king or a fifth kingdom will come, but this one will be different. The other kings, because they're part of this statue, they're the work and the glory of men. But this stone, not cut by human hands, it will strike the feet of the statue and bring it down. It will fall to pieces and blow away like chaff in the wind. They'll be all but forgotten. While this stone not of human origin, grows to become a mountain that fills the whole earth, becomes the only thing that matters. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar apparently understood enough from that. Now, if what we want to know is the identity of those kings or kingdoms, Daniel's explanation isn't really very helpful to us. The gist of it, the idea of successive kings or kingdoms that are eventually brought down, that's, that's pretty clear. But if we want to know exactly who or what they are, well, Jews and Christians have been speculating about this for 2,000 years. I wish I had time to get into it, because some of it's really interesting. I've been reading a commentary that goes into all the history of the interpretation of Daniel. And there's some weird and bizarre stuff. But I strongly suspect that the, the, the dream referred to Nebuchadnezzar and then to the Babylonian kings who would succeed him and that stone being Cyrus, God's instrument who would bring the Babylonian empire down, establish the Persian empire, which would last far longer and be far greater than the Babylonians. And most important, Cyrus would be the one who would send the exiles back home to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. And Jeremiah prophesied exactly that. And that's exactly what happened. But one of the interesting things about Old Testament prophecy is that it often has a a bigger or broader application. It's kind of like a collapsible telescope. Think of a telescope. You can collapse it in and then expand it back out. In fact, uh, Bible scholars use the word telescope to describe that this is kind of what prophecy does. There are aspects of the prophecy that are clearly and obviously fulfilled. And they reveal the faithfulness of God to do what he says. And yet, there are aspects of the prophecy that aren't 
if you will, they aren't fully fulfilled. The exiles return, the temple is rebuilt, and yet the presence of the Lord never returns to it. And neither did the great glory days of Israel. And so the prophecy, even, even though it's fulfilled, something about it still points them to look for something more in the future. And I think that's how the author of Daniel, writing in the years of terror under Antiochus Epiphanes, I think that's how he's applying it. He's pulling the telescope and expanding it into his own time. He saw not individual kings, he saw whole kingdoms. And it's remarkable how well those legs of iron and the the feet of mixed iron and clay represent the kingdom of Alexander the Great and then the squabbling generals who carved up his empire amongst themselves under whom the Jews lived in those days. And so the Jews in those days were waiting for that stone not cut with human hands but sent by the Lord like another Cyrus, maybe even this time the Messiah, They were waiting for that stone to come, to destroy the pagans, and to restore God's kingdom. And it did. But again, as much as the prophecy was fulfilled, it wasn't fully fulfilled. It revealed the faithfulness of God, but it pointed to the future and said, there is still more and there's still something better to come. And so then the New Testament writers, they do the same thing pulling the telescope into the first century. But in their their case, they see the feet of iron and clay. That's the Roman Empire. And the stone not cut with hands, I mean, that was fulfilled in Cyrus. It was fulfilled in the days of the Maccabees after a fashion. But they see that better thing, that more glorious thing, that full fulfillment. That's Jesus the Messiah. And that mountain that fills the whole earth is his kingdom, the church, Christendom. Now, how does Nebuchadnezzar respond? Look at verses 46 to 49. I, I told you, it's a long chapter. This is the end of it, though. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and and revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this mystery. He did the impossible. And then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the, over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. Notice that the Lord does not give his wisdom to his saints in vain. Nebuchadnezzar's gods were silent and his wise men were miserable failures. But through Daniel, the God of Israel spoke. I expect the king was surprised. This was the God of a tiny conquered people. He had taken that God's sacred vessels and put them in the temple of his own gods. This was a defeated God. And yet this God speaks. His wise man, his prophet, has wisdom like none the king has ever seen. And so the great Nebuchadnezzar falls down at Daniel's feet and worships. I know that doesn't seem right. We could get bogged down worrying about the fact that the king is offering incense to Daniel and not directly to the Lord. 
but this man was a pagan, and this is what pagans did. And the point is that in Daniel, he saw this God of might and wisdom, this God who is present with men, not distant. He saw this God in Daniel, and in Daniel, he saw this God at work. And so he gave him glory in the way that was customary for him to do. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, or as we'll know them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're sent off to oversee the province, and Daniel is elevated to this position over all the wise men at Nebuchadnezzar's court. What does this mean for us? Brothers and sisters, Daniel reminds us to stand firm in faith, to trust the Lord, knowing that he is sovereign and that he is with us. The world we know may be collapsing around us. The church and the gospel may be falling out of favor. Fellow believers may be apostatizing. The pagans may be coming for us. They may be coming for our children. But God is still in control. Don't lose it. Don't melt down. Know that God is in control. Don't give up. Know that God is in control. He raises up kings and empires and he brings them down. Whatever happens is a call to us to be faithful, to pray for wisdom, and to listen for what the Lord is teaching us so that the church might come out the other side of these events stronger, purer, and more beautiful. And that even like Daniel in the midst of it, we might be given the opportunity to give witness to the glory of God before the pagans. Whatever happens, we can know that our God is Lord of all, maneuvering history toward its final goal, new creation. And with that lesson, Daniel reminds us us that the Lord is always with us. In contrast to the gods of the pagans, the God of Israel is near Think of all the gods that people in our world worship. Think of the gods that we're tempted to worship. Of money and power and sex and self and all these things. They're fickle and they do not last. But the God of Israel is near. The stone that the builders rejected stands in solidarity with us. He has given his life for us. He has risen from the grave for us. He's even poured out his own spirit into us and made us God's very temple. This Emmanuel, he is God with us as no other people in history have ever known. Think on that this morning as you come to his table. Eat the bread and drink the wine and know that his death and resurrection are for us, for you. Here we meet the stone not cut with hands. Here we are reminded that we are part of the great mountain that will surely one day fill the whole earth. And here we know that God is with us. Not only that God dwells with flesh, but that in Jesus, our God has taken our flesh himself. He has become one of us. He stands with us. And because of that, we stand with him. 
Be encouraged and be strengthened so that you can stand firm and so that you can be like Daniel, a witness to the glory of God for the sake of everyone around you. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we live in difficult days and we live with the temptation to compromise or to despair, or to give up. Remind us, we pray, that you are sovereign, that you are the Lord of history and King of kings, and that you are with, you are with, with us always, present. Take away our fears and our anxieties, and fill us with your grace, so that we can stand firm in faith as a testimony to your goodness and your faithfulness. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit. Amen.